You ever met anybody offended with something? Have you ever been offended with anything? Oh, we all have, haven't we? The truth is, this whole world is full of people that are offended. And if we were to be completely honest, all of us do get offended at times. The question is, what are we offended over? And unfortunately, many of us, when we're offended, we find ourselves offended over things that when we look back later on, we realize they really didn't matter all that much. They just didn't matter at the end of the day. Most people are offended when they're called out for something that they don't like someone pointing out in their life. And if truth be told, all of us have difficulties with our own behavior with our own temperament, with our own sin, if you will. And when we're called out for that, we take offense. Most of us do not respond in a humble way, but rather a prideful way. And as we look at the text this morning, we're going to realize that for many, as we see in this text, offense grows. It doesn't just stop. It continues to grow. We're going to be looking at three specific things here in this text in Acts 19, 21 through 41. Number one, stirring up a crowd, verses 21 through 27. Number two, finding a scapegoat, verses 28 through 34. And number three, maintaining a proper analysis, verses 35 through 41. Number one, stirring up a crowd, verses 21 through 27. Here's what the text says. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia, and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the, tra- the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know what we, that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. What we've just seen earlier in the text, and we saw this last week, is an incredible thing that occurred, right? Paul has got miracles going on People are gathered, and then others want to copy what he's doing. Unfortunately, they don't want to use the same methodology that Paul does in making Christ known. They want a name for themselves. We've seen that fraudulent impostors posed as the real thing, all the while being phonies trying to pretend they were doing what Paul was, only making a name for themselves. As so often happens, there are those who genuinely do love God, and want only what God would give, while others want what God gives for the furthering of themselves rather than His glory. True ministers of the Word will make Christ known. Impostors are posing for attention. As we look 
Last week, we saw that the frauds themselves were exposed when a demonically possessed man attacks them. And he takes on multiple people at once, and they run out naked. God moves mightily, though, and many come to saving faith when they're terrified by what they see. In fact, they genuinely convert by burning their books and turning in faith to Christ. As usual, when the gospel is spread, it brings controversy to the region. Which begs the question, with so many churches around this nation, why is there not more controversy? Why is there not more controversy in this country? Are we giving them the gospel or a feel-good message? I can't tell you the amount of times that I tune into sermons and it's the same message. God's got a wonderful plan for your life with no mention of sin and hell. There's no punishment, there's no judgment awaiting anybody in a lot of churches today, at least according to the preaching that they're hearing. As we move in this text, we find that Paul means to go to Jerusalem and he makes some stops through Macedonia and Achaia. His goal was to take donations from the Gentile churches to the poor in Jerusalem. But before he can make that trip, as always, something occurs. Somebody was not pleased with what was going on in Ephesus. And his influence in that city causes another riot. Paul just can't help himself. As we've seen before, people don't care about the gospel message until it starts, it starts affecting their bottom line. You can hold on to your faith in Jesus as long as you don't start telling them or the rest of those in Ephesus here that you don't need to purchase idols anymore. That won't be necessary. And if you're the one making the idols, you're going to be a little upset by that. There goes your money. The economy is the argument many will make when they run for office, even to this day, is it not? Although in our time we've given so much money away, there's no incentive to work, I think, here in America. Especially recently. Demetrius here, though, he made a living selling shrines to Diana, the goddess that many worshipped in Ephesus. Devoted worshipers of Diana would bring in small little, would bring, would buy small little figurines as a way of dedication to the cause. In fact, to understand how big of a deal this is, we need to understand that the temple of Diana is known as one of the seven wonders of the world. This is a beautiful place. There's a lot put into this place. Many would travel to visit this place. So a lot of money was involved. With the gospel spreading, this made the business drop in revenue. And their bottom line was hurt. What's interesting is if you actually look at the text and study out who exactly Demetrius is, he would be more in line with a union worker lead, or head of a union, if you will. So he had a bunch of people more than likely under him that he had to talk to them about this. Hey, listen, we're not making money here. We're losing money because of Paul. We need to do something about this. 
He gathers his tradesmen together and warns them that their revenue is being hurt by the teaching of Paul, or the way as mentioned here. He has realized that it's not just a local problem here, it's a nationwide and even outward problem. Because people from other places that usually come are not coming as frequently. The gospel had spread throughout Asia to the point where they're not seeing the influx of guests that they're used to. They couldn't take back those souvenirs, if you will, because they didn't come out. Paul's gospel proclamation has made their industry rather worthless. Because if I've got the living God, what do I need your idol for? What do I need that for? What do I need to visit here for? Imagine with me the gospel affected so much of our landscape here in New England that many of the places of industry were directly affected by that. Imagine with me the strip clubs being empty. The psychiatrist trying to get people in tune with their feelings doesn't have a job because the Word of God has affected them. Certain book sales drop because the Bible becomes more prominent. The spread of the gospel was so apparent that they knew that more would be lost if they let it continue. Which is why the argument made by Demetrius here is a religious argument. The great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Listen, I'm going to touch right in with the religious section here. I'm going to hide behind what I'm really not going after, but I'm going to use it for my means. I'm going to hide behind Diana as a wonderful goddess and we need everybody to worship her. And what Paul's preaching here is not what we want. Our goddess will no longer be the one that everyone worships. That's what's happening here, guys. Paul's taking people away from our worldview. He's more concerned here, Demetrius, about his financial status than he is really about the worship of Diana. Let's just call it what it is. But to get people to agree, he uses the religious system as a means to get his point across. Listen, folks, if you haven't been fooled already enough by politicians proclaiming they love Jesus while they don't stand for life, truly in the legislative stance, then we don't understand that people have been the same all along. Many have used religion as a means for their own benefit, rather than really glorifying God. This is a place where we need to pause and consider sincerely whether we have the same spiritual lingo ourselves when it comes to possible hardships. Do we pivot to a greater cause for Christ when we're so concerned, not really about the purity of the gospel, but really how this affects us personally? At the core, we ought to take care of our own things, right? We all have to provide for our families, love the brethren, being aware of our own weaknesses. But when things come along that expose us or will possibly hurt our bottom line, 
We, do we not do what this man does here in invoking the name of Christ? I don't know if you've ever met people that say things like this. Maybe you have. God wants me to be happy. I'm going to use God for my reason here. The situation doesn't work out so well. It must be wrong then for me to continue. It's not making me happy. I need to stop. I need to do something else. It's not fair how much they have. They must not love God as much as I do. They must be selfish. Have you considered that living by faith has gain and loss attached to it? And that trials you've never considered may have occurred to people behind the scenes? They also may be doing as God asks and he decided to bless them at this moment. Unfortunately, everybody only sees the highlight reel for everybody else, right? I've heard this one before. I know this is wrong, and fill in the blank, whatever it is that person's doing that they know is against God's word. And I don't really want to repent here, but nothing's happened to me. God is loving and gracious. I don't see anything happening. Have you considered the danger you may be in with that kind of thinking? The truth is, and here's a harsh truth, we may not even be a child of God living a fraudulent Christian experience. As always happens, though, when you stir a group of people up, they need to find a scapegoat. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Number two, finding a scapegoat, verses 28 through 34. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them did not know why they had come together. (laughs) I love verses like that. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. These people in unison declared great as Diana of the Ephesians, which was actually implied that this was a popular phrase that was quoted during that time. As always, when you get a crowd worked up, you need a scapegoat. Like, you've got to find somebody to blame, right? If you've got a crowd gathered together, somebody is to blame. Where's Paul? We can't find Paul. Let's get his companions. Let's get his friends. Let's go after the people that he knows. These businessmen were not having their profits taken away from them. They were going to fight back. You don't need to always strategically figure out how to diminish someone else's profit, believer. You need to do what it is that God's called you to and let the results speak for themselves. It's an important reminder. 
What you see here is what happens when people are riled up emotionally. Have you ever seen a crowd of people angry? Have you at least watched it on the news? Have you seen how out of control people can be? The one thing that's always puzzled me, and I've, I've watched sports quite a bit, is when a certain team wins, why people are burning cars and turning things. I've never understood that. Like, what? How was that celebrating? I'm trying to figure that out. I mean, it, it's, it's, you're not angry, right? Your team won. Like, wh why would you do that? I guess it's one way to rile things up. Unfortunately, what tends to happen when people are emotionally charged, they react without any reasoning. There's absolute confusion that happens here. So they get in the city, they had to finally figure out a place to kind of move this whole thing over to. They went right into the theater. As the crowd grows larger, it moves to the Ephesian theater, which holds over 20,000 people. So they couldn't get Paul, but instead they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's companions, out of anger. What's interesting is Paul's not around at that time, but he wants to address them. He's, he's kind of wanting to go through the crowd and address this whole situation, and he's pulled back and held back by other disciples. They knew this was a very dangerous situation, that Paul could be instantly killed if he walked right in there. I think we've grown so used to protests here in America that we don't realize the difference in texts like th these and things we've seen. Like, this was an angry crowd to the point that they're not going to wait for a trial for Paul. He's dead. We're going to take him out. This was a full-on riot with men angry enough to kill the opposition. The disciples and even men here that are mentioned that worked in the city urged Paul not to come out of concern for his safety. They had to hold Paul back. Hey, listen, Paul, you go in there, you're a dead man. But I want to... No. And they had to forcefully pull Paul back from doing that. You've got to love the, the courage of Paul. You really do. He even had to be stopped at times in his zeal for God. For his safety. I don't know about you, but Paul's witness is a matter of conviction for all of us. We guard so much that we have to the point of not saying certain things that may offend others. Not mentioning Christ because it may diminish our influence in their lives. Going out of our way to be nice to people by actually hating them and not telling them the truth. Listen, church, the early church was very careful who they placed in the leadership because one of the qualifiers for that was whether you were willing to endure persecution. You were the first one to go in that church if persecution had. If you were an elder or a deacon in the church, you were targeted first. Ask anybody that's gone through persecution in communist Russia, they will tell you the same thing. They go after the leaders first. 
I don't think we understand the seriousness of the positions that we hold in American Christianity sometimes. Stephen Armstrong, in his commentary on this passage, states the following. This really convicted me, especially with this last week. It's been said that in our country today, it's acceptable to send our children to die for our country. But we hesitate to send our children to countries where they might die for their Christian witness. Look, unfortunately, church, we've bought into so much American patriotism that it no longer moves and stirs our hearts that there are saints around the world that are ministering for the gospel, losing their lives. And one, we beam in pride over in America, and the other, why would you do something like that? Why would you sell out so much to God to go to a dangerous country like that to reach people with the gospel? What are we going after, parents, when it comes to raising our kids? For them to prosper? Define the word. What does that look like? To be safe? That's the big word everybody's using right now. It's for your safety. I don't remember the last time Scripture ever promised safety when it comes to living by faith. Are we just wanting it to be easier for our children than we had it growing up? Listen, when was the last time you had it in your mind to raise your children to be bold, courageous, faithful? When were those the words that we described our upbringing with our kids? And let's pause for a moment and actually think through this for a moment. Those of us that have actually gone through hard things in life, are those not the things that made us who we are today? Are they not? Why are we trying so hard to protect our children from that? We're to raise warriors for Christ. Not shield and protect them in every way possible so that they can no longer fight the battles God has for them. When was the last time that we took that story of Daniel and, and explained to our children that, yeah, you can work a job, have a high prominence in society, but also be faithful to Christ and know that you still have to be faithful to Him no matter what happens? It's more than just opposing authorities because of your political values, church. It's because of your allegiance to Christ. And don't mix conservatism with Christianity. They're not the same thing. We do it too often in our country. That needs to be the difference between you and others, is your allegiance to Christ surpasses all. You can find common ground in the greater good of America, but don't lose sight of the gospel, church. That matters more than you bleeding red, white, and blue. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say don't love your country. I just said we have this backwards. King Jesus matters more than Trump ever will.
or Biden if you voted for him. Francis Schaeffer had it right when he said this, I believe that pluralistic secularism in the long run is a more deadly poison than straightforward persecution. We have absolutely seen the results of that. Back at this, in this text, the crowd is so riled up that they don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know why they're there. I love this verse. Verse 32, let's read this again. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and I love this part right here, and most of them did not know why they had come together. We're not even talking a small fraction of the people. Most didn't even know what they were doing. I don't even know why I'm here. I just followed that guy. I don't even know what I'm upset about. They just told me to come. We got to get rid of Paul. Why do we got rid of him? I don't know, but we got to get rid of him. I don't know, Demetrius, but he said we need to. He told us he's dangerous. What kind of danger does he pose? We've seen him around for the last couple years. Seems like a pretty nice guy. Church, have you ever been emotionally so charged up you don't even know what you were really arguing about at the end? You don't even know what you were really offended by at the end? You ever argued with somebody and at the end of the argument go, what were we fighting about? That's what's going on here. These people are that confused. I have no idea what I'm doing here. But everybody else is. What's even more unfortunate is maybe the person we're accusing of not understanding us is simply confused because we don't even understand ourselves. You ever try to explain to something but what you're upset by and you can't even explain it yourself? Don't tell me that's never happened to you. What's interesting here is they pull Alexander out and make him out to be a scapegoat as well which makes it very uncomfortable for him because he's actually a Jew who, from what we can see here in the text, is not likely a follower of Jesus. As Paul actually hints in 2 Timothy, you'll actually just read that this last week. Yeah, the Alexander that Paul references there is more than likely this Alexander right here. They got the wrong guy. Oh, how many lessons can be learned here when it comes to emotional outbreaks for us? When we take it out on all the wrong people. Listen, do we not get frustrated with our children when we ourselves are overwhelmed? Do we not get angry at others for our own inconsistencies? It's the boss's fault we didn't get a good review. It's the church's fault that they're not loving. While I stew in self-pity, refusing to love anyone else. We're emotionally erect when it comes to our anger at others. 
which is why it's important, as we see here in the text, to maintain a proper analysis. Number three, maintaining a proper analysis. Verses 35 through 41. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. As always, there needs to be a person that steps in the situation and calms everybody down. The city clerk is the leader, if you will. In other references, if you look at it, he's more of a mayor in that city. He arrives on the scene to calm things down and make sure to give a proper analysis of the situation. Listen, you guys are not thinking through this correctly. Pause for a moment here. This would more than likely be a major type of leadership role in that city. What's interesting is that he addresses certain issues that were brought up and stirred things up there. He, he addresses that no one, by the way, is going to take your temple away from you. You're getting ridiculous here. These men were not threatening to destroy the actual temple. That's hyperbole. Especially when he goes to their religious beliefs and says, listen, this has already been proven. This is withstanding anything else. This temple's already up. What are you worried about? He also mentions, if you're upset by the influence of these men, namely Paul, deal with this properly by going through the court system. Look, there's a right way to handle things and there's a wrong way to handle things. And we both know, all of us know this, when we have an argument with somebody, that there's a right way to argue and a wrong way to argue. Do we not? Have you ever started a conversation with somebody that turned into an argument only to realize that I didn't even expect this happening, but now I'm in the middle, I might as well dig in. I'm going to try my best to prove my point just because I want to win now. I don't even care what the point is, I just want to win. And you lose track of what you're really going after. That's what's going on here. They didn't even really know what they were going after by going after Paul. Especially because the majority of them didn't even know why they were there. To sound like the thing to do. Which kind of makes me wonder sometimes, and I'm going to be honest, when I read the Bible, I start then looking at the modern 
context of where we live, and I go, how many people that go to protest really know what they're protesting? Makes you wonder. Okay, you stand for that organization. What does it stand for? I don't know. I'm just here to protest. I'm just here to support the brothers. I'm here to support the blue. He also tells them not get worked up by acting rashly and emotionally charged as they have. He actually tells them, listen, you all need to cool down here. Getting a little too intense. You're not thinking properly. He says, use the law properly. Don't get us all accused of disorder and unlawful assembly. This clerk's going, listen, you're going to get us all in trouble by doing this the wrong way. Why is he concerned? He's the mayor. He's the clerk. He'll be held to account as well. He says all these things and finishes with dismissed. This was probably the fastest counseling session a person's ever had. Stop being upset. Deal with it right away. Don't be emotionally charged. You're dismissed. Everybody go. If only counseling was this simple. Do we not get into a place in life where we're just like this crowd? Offended by something or someone, not sure exactly what it is, but we're offended. And as time goes on, we need someone to come along and correct us in our analysis of the situation. We're not looking at things correctly. And we need someone to kind of balance our perspective out. Listen, this actually happens quite a bit in the church context. It really does. A disciple of Jesus decides Scripture is not the most important thing in their life. In fact, it's not really important dealing with the problems in their life. The latest cultural fix works better. So they'll turn to things like yoga, psychology, secular counseling, you name it. Another believer tries to address it by trying to come alongside that believer and, and help them see that this is actually dangerous to go down this path. Only to have that person snap at them and call them judgmental. And many times they leave the church over a misconceived notion that they're being judged. Well, and all the other person was trying to do was be a help. What happens many times, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, sometime later on, God sends somebody to help them see properly that that person was not being judgmental, but actually trying to care for them and restore them. Listen, the truth is, believers who actively live in outward sin, be it drunkenness, anger, sexual immorality, rebellion against church authority, I mean, you name it, when they're called out, they will lash out at the person trying to get them to see the danger. By either calling the person out for their own sin, oh, we're all the same, you're a sinner too. I don't know if you've ever heard that when you try to confront anybody. 
Or if you've ever been confronted, maybe you've done that too. Or simply denying that they have any problem themselves. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. Or even worse, this is probably the one that burns me the most as a pastor. Give you a little insight as to pastoral mindsets. Yeah, I know I probably shouldn't be doing this. And they go on their way, continuing doing it. Yeah, you're probably right. I shouldn't do this anymore. I know. I got to get back to church. I know. I know. I need to do these things. You're right. Yes, pastor. I know. I know. And I know people that have been doing that for so many years. And it breaks my heart. All of those responses do not take any accountability for oneself, but rather blames the others, blames the church, or just right dismisses the importance of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Listen, church, the moment that we can make an influence in the world is when we realize what God has done for us and what we need to repent of. The moment that you're out there looking at everybody else to point out is the moment you're missing the gospel message and what it was intended to demonstrate to you. Listen, the truth is, all of us have moments of failure in judgment, discernment in our lives. When we judge ourselves or others, we're many times misstating the truth or misconceiving the reality. The most mature among us have always had others come alongside and help us see more clearly at times. I can tell you many times through the time, through the time I've been here at Sovereign Grace Church that people have come up to me during different seasons of my life here and pointed out certain things that I need to pay attention to. And at times I received it readily and other times I was offended as we're talking about here only to realize later on they actually loved me. They actually cared. The most mature among us have need of others to tell us at times. If you have Paul telling the Apostle Peter he's off on something, we have more than that to probably worry about. And sometimes we're way off in the way we think about things, right? We're work, worked up about something or someone, and sometimes we're just a little overdramatic, right? Oh, it's such a big thing. I can't believe it. This is going on in my life. Have you prayed about it? No, I'm just frustrated and vented to you. But pastor, you don't know. I've been dealing with this for so long. You do realize Paul had a thorn in his flesh that he asked the Lord to remove, and it wasn't, right? And I would argue that Paul is a more spiritual man than you and I. When you are corrected by another faithful disciple of Christ, take it as an opportunity to grow in your faith. And what I mean by faithful is someone who exhibits the things that they're trying to help you with. Right? Like if a person's trying to correct you on something, they might want to be set in that area. That's just a real big tip for all of us in the church. We're going to correct somebody, 
make sure you're right in that point. Make sure you're working in that area yourself. If you want to tell somebody they need to be a more giving person, make sure you're a giving person, right? If you're telling somebody to be more patient, make sure you're demonstrating patience. Right? Like, all these things that we want to help one another with, we might want to be doing ourselves before we want to help someone else. Which is one of the reasons why, you know, entrepreneurs and rich folks will say, don't, don't talk to your poor, rich, poor uncle about money advice. He's going to lose it for you as well. I don't know why we in the church think any differently. The whole point of discipleship is learning from others to then teach others as well. The preferred method is for the mature to, lead, to teach the less mature who then teach someone else. This church formed in Ephesus was passionate about the gospel and Christ himself. They severed whatever it took to make Christ a priority. Unfortunately, as happens to many churches which are made, of, made up of disciples, they left their first love and no longer prioritize Christ. What's truly tragic is that this church died out because Christ was no longer a priority. What we're seeing today in many churches is a high priority on the experience with no regard to Christ himself. There's no regard to making Christ the priority in our lives. If it's about how he makes us feel rather than what we must do to serve him, I want that today in Christianity. I just want the Lord to make me feel good on Sunday morning. I'm going for the experience. I really felt God today. And hear, hear anybody say that ever? I really felt God today. And they go about their life living in debauchery the next day. They really felt God. If it's about what makes us feel better than serving Him, when we choose a high, we'll never attain it. Well, our faith will always be easily shaken. If you pulled away most of the Christian music today from people and gave them only the Bible, how many would go to church? How many would go to church just to hear the Word? That's all that matters to them over everything else. Unfortunately, most of the music today is just for experiential reasons. Which is why good doctrinal music is so important. Psalms like Psalm 23, if we were to sing it, much better lyrical content than most of the stuff written today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's so much more encouragement there than you find many of the places look, people look for today. We're not about building an organization here, church. We're about making Christ known. And if God builds this church, we want it to be founded on Christ.
not on some gimmicks, not on some personalities, not on some mumbo-jumbo that tries to win people over with garbage. When a saint is passing away, they don't need, they don't need the latest gimmick. They need the Word of God. God adds to the church those who will be saved. Our job is not to get people to like us. Our mission is the gospel. Christ dying for sinful man, taking their sin on his shoulder and rising from the dead to give us new life. That's our priority. So in conclusion, church, where is the offense? Where is the offense? Are you offended by others' inconsistency? I mean, is that what troubles you all the time? I can't believe how inconsistent they are. Here I am, serving the Lord faithfully, and I'm always offended by everybody else that doesn't. Does it bother you that others aren't living up to their end of the bargain, if you will? Does it bother you that other saints don't live like saints, setting yourself up on a pedestal at times like we do? Here's a question. Are you offended by your own sin? Does it bother you that you've offended God? Does personal sin truly bother you when you're aware of it? And if you're in the Word of God, you're going to be aware of sin a lot more frequently. Or are you simply looking to pass the blame to the other guy? Or your busy schedule, if you will. When it comes to the church, are you riling others up because of one person's offense toward you? Do you find it easy to blame the whole for the one that hurt you? It's a real travesty that we've severed so many relationships in a church over one person's offense. It's tragic that so many of us can't even really articulate what we're offended by. We're just like the crowd, not knowing why we're still holding a grudge against that person. But we are. We're still bitter. Nothing's going to stop that. Some of us are forever the victims in every story we tell ourselves. To the point of God owing us for the nice thing we did for somebody the other day. Listen, church, we need to get over ourselves. All of us need to get over ourselves. And we need to realize how much we've offended God ourselves. It's that offense that we should be most worried about. And unfortunately, we don't take in those warnings in Scripture where Jesus himself says, of whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. And we don't take seriously that when we've been forgiven of so much, we really think it's not all that much that God's forgiven us of. The things that people have done to us pales in comparison to what was done to the Son of God. It pales. He became sin for us who knew no sin. He identified with who we were 
without playing the victim himself, but rather humbling himself on our behalf. The greatest offense is our offense before God. And he's the only one that has the right to be offended. As we've trashed his holy name as saints. Those that do not know him will one day face the reality that all of us are to kiss the sun. If you're watching this online, you need to understand that if you do not know Christ, you do not have eternal life, period. You can feel good about certain things, but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're lost and judgment is awaiting. We need to pay him honor and respect due to the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who humbled himself and became one of us to rescue us.